from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the shape of the new energy services company, why 2018 could be a breakthrough year for SASB, investors take aim at 100 polluting companies, and a look at Solutionary Rail. The train's leaving the station this week on 350. It's December 15th, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Heather. Hello from Chile. Chile, Chile, New Jersey. It finally snowed and it's cold and I actually have my heat on. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Yes, it is. Yeah, well, we're uh, we're suffering fires out here in California. We just, uh, we're several hundred miles away from the LA ones, but we had some in the Oakland Hills uh, on uh, Tuesday morning. It was a little scary. A couple houses burned and that's where the big firestorm of uh, 1991 uh, happened. And so it's, 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 it's not good. Someone said it's the new normal, but someone else said, well, we don't even know what normal looks like anymore because things are getting so wonky. There was news this week that the uh, uh, permafrost in the Arctic was melting at a faster rate than anyone expected. Uh, it's just, I mean, we're in for a wild ride, and, and I, don't, I don't mean that in a good way. Challenging times in that regard. Challenging times in that regard. We had some uh, interesting people traveling to Paris this week, right? Um, we couldn't make it, but quite the celebrity group show for uh, one, one Planet Summit, the anniversary of the Paris Agreement, two-year anniversary. So there were a bunch of different events going on, and, and uh, the, the President Macron uh, hosted. Um, <laughs> I happened to, I pulled up a couple of stories. Uh, the Denver Post headline says, Paris hosts major climate summit. And it's all about Trump. Um, so that was, uh, I guess, in some ways, uh, what he would have wanted. Uh, but um, it, it, basically, the world leaders rejecting him may not be what he had in mind. But um, uh, there were quite a number of really interesting developments. We'll talk about a couple of them um, in, in a minute. But one of them was the World Bank saying that they're going to stop funding uh, fossil fuels basically by 2019 at least the upstream projects, uh, the drilling and, and such. That was a big development because they had been under fire for a long time, talking about the perils of climate change, but financing things that contributed to it. Um, and uh, it, it's just a really interesting time. We're going to talk in a, in a couple minutes about some of the uh, things that took place there. And then here in San Francisco, we had a sad uh, moment. Uh, our mayor, San Francisco... Ed Lee uh, died suddenly, and he was just a good friend of not just tech, but clean tech. We'll miss him. I, I had the good fortune to get to know him a little bit and introduced him at a Green Biz event that we had in San Francisco a number of years ago, and we had a, a little a fine time talking about the fact that we were both born the same year, which was the year of the dragon, and that was a, a good thing, but it turned out to not be uh, quite as good for him. So Ed, Ed Lee... Um, Good man who will miss. I saw that and was uh, equally shocked and, and saddened by that. Let's move on to the weekend review. 
So this week we're going to talk about money and investing because that was the theme in Paris. Uh, a lot going on. I already mentioned the World Bank's announcement, one of several different things. In, in addition to what was going on in Paris, uh, we, we had a piece you wrote, uh, Heather, on SASB, the uh, Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, and uh, something we've talked about over the years, um, but we haven't talked about it in a while. So What's going on with them? So first of all, it was just like a perfect week for, for, for me to sit down and think about this story. I attended the symposium the SASB group had um, at the end of November in New York, and it was a second annual symposium and really meant to drive basically mainstream interest in, in the code that they're um, getting ready to finalize here in early 2018. They've got a big movement going on around sector-specific reporting metrics. So, um, you know, for example, if you're in a shipping company or a, you know, you would have certain, you know, like someone like a UPS, you would have certain delivery metrics um, that were that you're declaring. If you're in a, an aviation company like JetBlue, um, you would declare certain um, metrics regarding jet fuel and, and your emissions um, per flight or, or as well as what you have in, in the pipeline, if, if you will, and back in the inventory. And the thing that really struck me, so that this is a grant gathering of about 300 people from all over the map, right? So corporate uh, secretaries and those responsible for creating the reports for the for the SEC and, and sort of the core financial reports, right? And that's what really um, the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board is all about. Uh, it's it's really trying to make the metrics that the sustainability community has been collecting sort of in a, I won't say ad hoc, but I would say in a very specific way, right? Um, measures that are meant to help the sustainability world understand what's going on, but things that, you know, the, the financial community couldn't quite get their head around. So the idea is to marry the, you know, marry those environmental metrics with um, in, and present them in ways that the financial community can understand. And I have to say, the thing that really struck me um, as I, I was sitting there think, taking in all the different presentations was that, number one, the investment interest, the, the interest in the investor community at the institutional level, at least, is so intense. Um, we, we saw we had Vanguard there. Van, the chairman of Vanguard, William McNabb, was there speaking about why he um, decided to sort of put his letter out this, this summer. You know, basically saying, "Listen, folks, um, if we have money in you, you better you better be declaring these metrics um, because we care. It matters, and it matters for your results." So. You know, the, the thing I walked away with was that, number one, you know, we, we've got some good progress happening, especially on the sector level for the SASB group. Um, we will see absolutely some things get finalized in the, in the first half of next year, I would say. And secondarily, that um, there's, there's going to be a lot more pressure on the corporates, the corporate world, and particularly not just the sustainability team, but in the finance departments to to declare some of these things. I mean, I think it was, it was also very telling that this week, um, ExxonMobil basically capitulated um, to a shareholder proposal that they had been fighting and fighting and fighting. Um, they put a filing out on Monday say, basically saying, okay, okay, you know, yeah, we're going to report more on the risks um, that we see from climate change. And yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk more about, you know, what we mean, what our company and what our business um, could look like in a in a world that's moving to a low carbon economy. So a lot of things happening with money, money, money. So let's go back to SASB because uh, SASB um, 
was born in 2011, and I, I, I wrote a lot about it at the time. And the, the mission back then was to do, and what they've done mostly over the last six or so years is develop a set of, of as you said, materiality assessments uh, for different sectors. What are the most material uh, things uh, from an investor perspective that, that companies should be reporting? And so they've done that. And But the original plan was the hope that they develop these standards and they become codified in SEC. The SEC require these things in effect, which is what happened, you know, akin to the generally accepted accounting principles. Well, that world shifted in the United States, obviously, since the uh, election. And and so what's their plan now? How are they going to enact this? Is this going to be a a voluntary thing or an investor-driven thing? What's going to make companies want to hew to the SASB guidelines or standards? It still is voluntary. That's very clear. They will be pushing for it to be accepted in the boardrooms and and the financial community. I'll just give you a very specific example. JetBlue is, I think they were certainly the first airline company, and and they may have even been the first company to actually start using some of the codes that are in place right now. So they created a report last year that started to discuss their environmental metrics with respect to these the SASB code. And because of that sector report, um, the, the investors at the, the SASB symposium were saying, hey, okay, so if JetBlue is doing this, we're going to start asking questions of the other airlines. So I guess the hope, that, the hope is um, that, number one, Yes, there would be more um, pressure from the investment community, and I do think you're you're starting to see that with the long-term institutional investors. But also, they're 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 hoping that some of these earlier adopters are going to force other forward-thinking companies in their sector to get with the program, if you will, and to at least, um, you know, I'll be, I'll be clear, Jet JetBlue is, is is doing this separately. It's not quite it's not part of their 10K. It's not part of their regular financial reports. But they are pushing the envelope as, as far as like actually trying to use these metrics and declare them, and instead of instead of just sticking some language in, in sort of the boilerplate, right? The little oh, these sort of um, non you know <laughs> these disclaimers that you hear at the end of different financial reports. Um, they're going out there and saying, okay, here's what we look like. You know, anyone else? And so um, the institutional investor communities is is uh, seems to be getting with the program on that. The challenge, um, and this was pretty clear also at the symposium, is that obviously the institutional investment, like you and me, right? How are we going to make decisions about our 401k? We need to also get um, all of the analysts on board, if, if you will, like the, 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 the people that are selling to res, you know, consumers need to start training their analysts to be able to talk about this. And that is definitely a hole right now. Um, the, the companies are going to have to get get their teams more acquainted with uh, and and incented to let's be clear to talk about this in a way that that's easy for the the individual investor to understand and also you know there still is this perception in, in among some of the the people that sell to to you and me that you know environmental social and, and um, governance it and looking at that in a fund is is potentially going to take a fund down so you're going to see a, a bigger focus on showing that Paying attention to those things isn't going to necessarily result in a, in a lower investment, but long term, it definitely could be uh, better for for an investment uh, if you think about it. So, so individual investors haven't really, I mean, the, the, the socially responsible investing piece has grown, but it's still kind of noise out there. But 
One thing that might change that is an initiative that the World Business Council for Sustainable Development is working on, and I think they're going to be launching next year, early next year, um, is to encourage and, and, and help uh, companies to offer more socially responsible investing uh, in their 401k plans and their pension plans. And they're going to use the WBCSD members as, as uh, a testbed for that and hopefully uh, prove that this can be done. Uh, with a minimal pain and suffering and possibly even some uh, comparable or, or improved returns. So that's something we're going to be watching. But let's go back to the institutional investors because they did something really interesting this week in Paris as part of the uh, One Planet Summit. Um, there was a, a big focus on finance and the World Bank announcement was part of that. There was a paper that from World um, Resources Institute and the Center for American Progress proposing something called America's Climate Fund, uh, which, which is a novel, interesting way to to get the U.S. to contribute to the to global climate funding in light of the fact that, that the Trump administration has pulled us out of, of that world. But the really interesting one, I think, is this something called Climate Action 100+. Plus. A little bit of a kludgy name and a little bit generic in a way, but um, pretty significant. Um, so uh, 225 influential global investors controlling more than 26 trillion. That's 26 trillion. That's trillion as in T-R-I-L-L-I-O-N. In assets under management, pledged to engage with 100 corporate corporations that they deemed are responsible for about 85% of total total. Uh, global greenhouse emissions, and that's interesting. And, and in some ways, that's it's just a continuation of of things we've been looking at for a long time. Uh, how the investment communities uh, has been has been stepping up. But but if you take a look at the companies, it's a really interesting group. It's it's global. There's uh, a lot of American companies and and European companies and Asian companies. Uh, a number of Chinese, uh, big Chinese companies, including state owned. Uh, uh, companies in uh, Coal India, which I believe is state-owned, uh, U.S. utilities like Duke, uh, and 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 even companies that I thought were doing a pretty good job, um, like Statoil, Norwegian um, oil company, uh, and Dow, which has always been sort of on the leadership. Ed Toyota's on the list. So this is going to be interesting. Now, what does it mean to engage with these companies? That's the $26.3 trillion question. And so I pose that to Mindy Luber, the head of Ceres, who uh, is one of the founding organizations behind this. And uh, here's what she had to say. Well, investors take their job as owners of companies quite seriously. Not all of them think they could divest from half of the market. Um, they own companies that have a carbon footprint and they want that to change. They also believe as investors that companies who are not addressing climate change in a comprehensive, responsible way are not well-managed companies. So they are going to engage with those companies. What does it mean? It means an investor may very well deal with the board of directors or the CEO of a company to talk with them about setting up a platform that deals with climate comprehensively as we talk about it. If, in fact, those companies have no interest or not willing, I suspect some of the investors may file shareholder resolutions. One way or the other, they want to use their role as owners of those companies 
to prevail upon those companies to implement and to act on climate change in a comprehensive way from the boardroom through to their supply chain because the investors believe that a well-managed company is doing just that. So is there a specific checklist or list of requests or something that a company can go to and saying yes, yes, no, no, yes, uh, that so they can understand where they stand? Yes, there are very specific questions that are going to be asked of them. I don't think there's just an easy yes, yes, no, no. It will be something more comprehensive and through what the investors think is acceptable management practices for those companies. Um, and there will be a benchmarking work done every single year looking at how each of the companies have responded. Largely what the investors believe is that climate change should be integrated at the board level as a governance matter, meaning boards should be looking at how the firm is managing climate change and be evidencing that publicly. They also expect companies to do a comprehensive disclosure piece consistent with what was called for by the Climate Disclosure Task Force that requires a company to look at how they're managing climate change from the top to the bottom of the firm. And finally, beyond disclosure and decision-making, they want to see reduction in greenhouse gas emissions consistent with the Paris Agreement. So Paris says we need to be at a lower than two degree standard. They want to see companies putting in place systems that allow them to decrease their carbon footprint accordingly. So it sounds like that will involve science-based targets. It will involve science-based targets. That's the methodology with which we believe companies ought to be looking at their decrease in carbon emissions. It is not just about saying we're going to decrease by 10%. 10% may very well not be enough to get us to where we need to go to have a functioning economy and future for our kids. Uh, So science-based targets are absolutely the standard by which we expect companies to act. So I was looking at the list of the 100 companies and uh, actually went through the exercise and and found that seven of the companies um, are also on the CDPA list. So uh, the presumption being that they're at least disclosing. So how do those two things reconcile? Sure. No, and I'll go further, Joel. Some of them are serious companies who we think quite highly of. So here's how we reconcile them. There are companies who are doing a very good job on disclosure. That would speak to whether or not they made it to the CDP list. CDP is rating companies based on how they're disclosing their carbon information. But it doesn't necessarily mean how they're acting. But let me go further because there are companies who are acting who are making substantial changes within their own facilities, but who have a supply chain where they could be doing more. So there are companies like, and I'll use PepsiCo. PepsiCo, in my judgment, is a leadership company on sustainability. They are doing a good job on water, on waste, on climate in many ways. But because their footprint, because they are such a large global company, and there are so many suppliers who are not acting, The investors want to work with PepsiCo, and that's why it is engaging, because PepsiCo is not a problem company, but it's a company that can work with the investors to reach out to a much broader supply chain and actually see the kind of change we need to see. 
So you've been at this a long time and, and series, and you have been at the forefront of a, a lot of investor-led actions against uh, companies, depressed companies on a number of things, and, and most particularly climate. Uh, the, you formed the Investor Network on Climate uh, Risk. And I'm curious how this feels. Is this, is this different? Uh, I know it's different, but is this substantially different? Is this a kind of a watershed moment? Joel, what this is, is number one, it's global. So this is no longer an issue we can look at as the United States or Europe or Australia. It is a global initiative, number one. It is based on facts of where the largest emitters are coming from and what the implications are for portfolios. And the number of investors, 224, maybe 226 by the time we get off the phone call, with assets of $26 trillion under management. And every one of these investors, the investors who have signed on, have signed on after lengthy briefings, debate, discussion. They are engaged, they are involved, and they want to move this. So I would say commensurate with the change in the science we've seen, investors have come a long way in the depth of understanding, in the strength and advocacy of which they want to see change, and with the clarity of the change they're asking for. This is about disclosure, it's about changing your practices, and it's about making sure companies are managing climate risk as a material financial risk from the boardroom through to the supply chain. So I would argue based on the global nature, the number of investors, the depth of their engagement, the specificity of what they're asking, this is groundbreaking and I expect will be quite impactful as we move forward. Mindy Luber, CEO and president of Ceres, thanks for talking to me. Great, thanks Joel. Hi, it's Joel again. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you'll check out Center Stage, our new podcast featuring live interviews from GreenBiz events. You'll find conversations with notables like Paul Hawken, Annie Leonard, Janet Napolitano, and executives from a wide range of companies. Check it out. Go to greenbiz.com slash center stage or wherever you get your podcasts. This week, GreenBiz senior writer Cassandra Sweet wrote a piece about companies competing to offer diverse energy services, energy service companies, or ESCOs. So, Cassandra, welcome. Uh, why did you start to look into energy service companies now? What's going on? Hi, Joel. Well, I decided to look into energy service companies to see uh, kind of what is the latest with companies that have a lot of uh, commercial properties, use a lot of energy um, and how some of these energy service companies are using new technologies to help companies who want to cut their utility bills and also uh, reach their sustainability goals. Maybe we should step back for a second and just give a little background on what an ESCO is. Is there a sort of a classic definition? Yeah, the classic definition is a company that comes in and figures out how to cut a company or, or government organization's uh, energy usage. They traditionally would, would come in and figure out what kind of lighting and, and equipment you need to get replaced to, to use less electricity. And, and it kind of would end there, although they also have systems that help your building manage these uh, energy-efficient appliances and other equipment. Uh, but then a new crop of companies 
relatively new in the last few years, have come along to offer kind of additional services in the form of batteries and other energy storage equipment and energy management controls and software to help some of the big companies that have solar panels that have already done a lot of these energy efficiency retrofits to kind of allow them to, to go the next step to you know, reduce their energy usage even more, cut their utility bills even more, and in some cases, even offer their local utility uh, grid services. So I remember back in the early days, the whole business model of ESCOs was sort of this no money down thing where uh, we'll come in and we'll swap out, say, the light bulbs or upgrade your heating, ventilation, air conditioning system. Won't cost you anything up front, but we will share in the savings that you get based on the baseline of, of the past n number of years, take all the risk and we'll share in the upside. Is that still what's going on? Is that still the model? That's right, Joel, and that's still the model. And the, these kind of upstarts have figured out how to optimize these batteries and other devices to squeeze even more savings out of a company's uh, energy bills uh, so that they have the same thing. They have these energy service performance contracts where, you know, they guarantee the performance of the equipment and systems that they install, and then they share the savings with the customer. So give us an example of one of the companies or some of the companies that are now the sort of the new uh, next generation ESCOs. So, uh, yeah, I, I spoke with Susan Kennedy, who's the CEO of Advanced Microgrid Solutions. Uh, it's one of the newer companies, and it offers uh, these types of services through batteries such as the Tesla Tesla batteries and Advanced Microgrid Solutions' own software components uh, to, to help big companies like Walmart and Irvine Company uh, and they're working with some of the universities in Southern California to limit the amount of power that they buy from their utility and also kind of give them a lot of flexibility with just their, their power usage. They can sell some of the services that they can do now with these batteries back to the grid. Uh, so they're creating these new revenue streams. And uh, so I talked to Susan Kennedy at Advanced Microgrid Solutions and asked her how her company works as an energy service company and, and what it is that they provide to customers. There are three types of, of companies in this space right now. You've got technology companies, service companies, and project companies, three big buckets. Under In technology companies, you've got batteries, solar, fuel cells, and other distributed generation, microgrids, kind of the, the hardware, software, uh, technology, computer technology companies. The old ESCO model is the, the energy services world. They were providing services like demand response, energy efficiency, energy management, and there are a ton of companies in this space, billions of dollars and deep knowledge in the energy services space based upon this old ESCO model. And then project companies are the ones that finance, build, own, operate assets, right? So under the old ESCO model, energy services didn't involve a lot of distributed generation, the solar, the storage, and the load control technologies that involve on-site generation. It was more about energy data, diagnostics, tariff billing, understanding all the complexity of, in terms of the, uh, you know, using these, uh, you know, the energy data and analytics and diagnostics. Mm -hmm. You have to understand the tariffs. You have to understand 
utility programs and you know energy management systems and stuff like that. The, they, they were load control uh, uh, technologies that turned your HVAC systems on and off. You know, they were very kind of capital light technology plays. Today, with the introduction of distributed generation, solar storage, fuel cells, microgrid controls, you're now in a, a, a brand new energy services model that is complex and capital intensive. So it, it, it's springing a whole new generation of energy service companies that can translate that complexity into something that end users can use. And what we're seeing is, is that there's three levels of, of, of complexity that, are, that make it a, a, a challenging transaction. So you've got the technology complexity, just adding batteries and solar together creates a technology complexity that the end-use customer doesn't necessarily have. They're dependent upon the company who's selling them the product to figure out how much solar do I need, how much battery storage, what kind of battery storage, the software, the firmware, the performance of that battery, you know, there's, there's a lot of performance risk in that technology. So, and, it's, and these are, these are capital-intensive, so buying a battery is not the same as, as buying, uh, you know, put, installing a, a, some software with an ROI of, you know, two to three years, because I'm going to get it back in energy savings. Now it's a very big, it's a big deal. I'm going to be putting in solar storage or a microgrid control or something that has not only capital outlay requirements, but performance risk, vendor contracts, O&M contracts, very complex on the on the on the on the building side. Plus, you have software. Yeah. Plus, right? there's software in every layer there. In, and then on, on top of that, you have the the utility uh, transaction and the transaction with how do you monetize these resources? How do I use these distributed resources in order to generate those savings or revenues from uh, providing grid services? That's a very complex set of transactions that involve contracts with a utility, contracts to, you know, to participate in wholesale markets, contracts with the end-use customer. So you've got three layers of very, very complex transactions now because of distributed generation. So the, this next generation of energy service companies are the ones that can come in and specialize in these areas. And so there's a whole broad range of folks that actually have software, like uh, you know, you've got companies like Tesla that have demand charge management software layer, and they can actually, uh, you know, provide this technology to the end use customer and give the 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 tools to participate in utility demand response programs. You've got companies like Enernoc that have the software controls to be able to provide demand response services, and they actually go get the utility contracts to provide those those demand response services. What about advanced microgrid solutions? The utilities are, are in some cases buying hundreds and hundreds of megawatts of demand response and solar resources and, and, and stuff and so you've got the big companies like AES, Nextera, EDF, NG, I mean all these big energy companies that are working directly with the utilities and providing these these services, mm -hmm. they're reaching, they're now reaching down into providing distributed resources behind the meter. So, so, so there's, you've got these big giants that are providing every level of, of service. So a company like AMS, what we specialize in is the software layer that is the, that provide, that allows, enables the transaction between an end-use customer and whatever the revenue streams are on the grid, on the, on the grid side 
So we, we take all the complexity about the technology, the, the regulatory and tariff op optimization, and providing those grid services to the utility and the wholesale. You're going to sign a contract with them and you're we, going to deal with all these other yes, parties. Right. So, so the we've, utility. We've created the software platform that allows Irvine Company to get paid for installing batteries and to, to do major demand response and other other energy services. So we've 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 enabled that transaction with our platform. Some software layer has to be able to perform the financial optimization, you know, and tell the batteries and the and the solar and the distributed generation what to do in order to produce not only that energy service for the for the utility, but has to protect the financial objectives of the end use customer. Creating the energy savings they want and creating grid products so they can get so they can monetize these resources and get paid for them in the grid. So the new energy services company lives in this space where they're taking a very, very technology intensive, a very regulatory intensive, and a very capital intensive project and simplifying that transaction for the end users. That's where the biggest growth is going to be in terms of energy services. And it's worth it because? Because distributed resources are, are being deployed at a rate beyond what anybody anticipated. I mean, the deployment of, of solar storage, electric vehicles, load control technologies, I mean, it's being deployed at a very, very rapid pace. And so end-use customers are, are installing these technologies. They need the service companies with the right software and the right market knowledge to be able to manage them and utilize them for grid services. So, Cassandra, you talked about uh, AMS and, 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 and other uh, Southern California-based companies. Is this primarily a California thing? This is very California-focused. At the current time, some other states, such as Hawaii, have... Uh, these these new energy storage systems that are helping companies reduce their energy usage. It helps that California offers rebates for projects like this through a program called the Self-Generation Incentive. And so it, it, it really helps to reduce the cost of installing these batteries and the software. Great. Well, we'll keep watching that. Uh, ESCO's The Next Generation, Cassandra Sweet, GreenBiz Senior Writer. Thanks. Thank you, Joel. Finally this week, you may be hearing more and more about the electrification of everything. I've even posited something I'm calling the first law of decarbonization. Anything that can be electrified will be. Oh, Associate Editor Anya Hollemeiser recently spoke with the author of a new book on how electrifying trains can also help meet our renewable energy goals. Here's Anya. We're all aboard for renewable energy going into next year. And here we have Bill Moyer, the writer of The Solutionary Rail, a new book that discusses why a clean, modernized, high-speed rail network can help the transition towards a renewable energy future. Could electrifying railroads open up new quarters of transmission and transportation and also even increase the reliability and supply of electricity from wind and solar and how we get to this place. Bill, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, Anya. Thank you so much. Can you talk a little bit about your background as, you, as an artist and activist and why you chose to write this book? My work is 
normally with a group called the Backbone Campaign. And we are activists who fight to preserve lots of different things, including the environment. We're based in the Pacific Northwest. So in the recent years, we've been battling coal ports and oil terminals and coal trains and bomb trains. And, and yet, merely being against things is inadequate. You also have to have a vision for what you're for. And it so happened that in our discussions with people around this region, including railroad labor folks, that we were challenged to green a 2008 Northern Corridor modernization paper. The Northern Corridor is the rail corridor from the Pacific Northwest to Chicago. So for three years, I worked with a group of technical experts, and a really wonderful team of people who patiently educated me into the realm of rail transportation and uh, renewable energy generation and, and transmission. And we started to learn how railroads don't just connect places, they connect communities and various interests. So people who are concerned about the diesel impacts of intermodal freight in urban communities and folks who are concerned about renewable energy transmission from rural places or economic development of rural communities or the environment or the climate or labor rights for truckers and for railroad workers, they all have a common interest in a better intermodal transportation system. And why is this such a timely and important thing to discuss now? Well, clearly people are concerned about the climate and the environment. That's one piece. Another piece is that I think there's a level of inevitability about rail electrification and the electrification of our transport infrastructure um, because the rest of the world is doing it already. And thirdly, we're trying to solve the problem of renewable energy supply and how to deal with the problems of getting renewable energy from the place it is generated to the communities that utilize it and also to balance out that system so the and to deal with the variability of renewable energy. So Solutionary Rail approaches this by saying, you know, instead of bailing out the railroad companies, let's actually go into a very mindful process of reorganizing this, this transportation infrastructure. Let's work together to solve multiple problems at the same time. Let's utilize and partner with the owners of these private rights of way by putting a publicly owned electrification and transmission infrastructure above them so that we can help the railroad companies shift and make that, that, that investment in the infrastructure that's corridor by corridor and that utilizes that airspace above the railroad rights of way to transmit renewable energy from the rural places that are wind-rich and solar-rich in this country. The Solutionary Rail campaign has received praise from Bill McKibben, author and co-founder of 350.org, also from Dennis Hayes, president of the Bullet Foundation. So there's a lot of interest here from the sustainability world, um, but who else has to be involved to make this a reality, whether it's utilities, companies, um, or municipalities? Well, I think all of the above, and I think that what's so exciting about this is in a time when we see a lot of division in this country, I think railroads are a non-ideological way to actually bring people into conversation with each other. Because really, you need tribes involved. You need urban communities that live 
along ports and fence lines uh, and rail yards and warehouse districts. You need labor. We need the transmission industry and wind and solar developers. And of course, we need the railroad companies. The railroad companies traditionally have been very resistant to changing. But I think that with only, they only have 3.5% of the value of freight in this country. They're only moving 3.5% of that value. And that market share is likely to decrease as things like coal go away. So they'll need to be involved. But it also is going to be very important that, that municipalities along various corridors, that major cities, that states in those corridors are taking leadership. And they are starting to do the feasibility study to solve the problems around how do we increase the speed, efficiency, regularity, and uh, velocity of the trains that are traveling on the tracks. And so one could imagine that Washington State and Minnesota and Montana might collaborate to create something like what we propose as a steel interstate development authority. And that entity would issue bonds, private activity bonds, to finance the development of that infrastructure. Similarly, you might have California working with Arizona and Kansas and Illinois to create a steel interstate development authority that serves the Southern Transcon. And likewise, corridor by corridor, these are opportunities for public-private partnerships for tribes and states and other tax-exempt entities to partner with railroad companies to shift how we move people and goods in this country. Thank you so much for your time, Bill. This is very fascinating, and I really do hope that with, uh, with this roadmap, uh, you know, no pun intended, we can get there faster. Yeah, we'll get on the right track. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organizations, stories, and events we've mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, check out our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Green Biz events. Send us email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love your uh, comments and ideas. Thanks to Green Biz 350's director, Stephanie Joyce, and our managing editor, Elsa Wenzel. And we'll be back here next week for our final edition of Green Biz 350 for the year 2017. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>